Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller is Maria Shahada, talking about the time she fell in love with someone across the Atlantic, then quickly fell out of love when they met in person. Maria is a brilliantly funny stand-up comedian, and her story follows suit. Though in our talk afterward, you'll also hear about how this story has more serious meaning in her life, and how both Maria's approach to her craft and understanding of herself are evolving. But first, let's listen to her story, recorded live at 21 Soho. Thank you so much. Oh, this is great. I love living in London. I do live here now. I moved here from L.A., because uh, I met a guy who lives here. We fell in love. We fell out of love immediately after. It turns out what was working about our relationship was the distance. Uh, That 6,000-mile buffer, that was perfect for us. You guys, I love saying I fell in love in, like, London because, like, it never gets a cheer. (laughs) Like, one time I got booed. Um, I was living in L.A. still, and I was on a trip here. And I met him, like, on my last day of the trip, and then we just uh, stayed in touch. Like, we exchanged numbers, and then I went back to L.A., and then we were texting and texting and texting, and eventually the texting gave way to FaceTiming, and then we were FaceTiming. Then were, we were, like, FaceTiming for hours every night, five hours a night. We just talked about everything. We were talking about, like, books and movies and music we love, and, and like, he had some crack in his ceiling that he complained about, like, his landlord never fixing. He whinged a lot, and... Uh, you know, we, we did the 36 questions to fall in love that the New York Times posted. You know, if you ask your partner 30, these 36 questions, you'll fall in love by the end of it. But, you know, we did all that. We did everything. Like, we didn't need that, though, because if you're staring at somebody's face for five hours every night, you're going to fall in love, especially my face. <laughs> I'm adorable. <laughs> no, but, like, I, I, like, took great pains to, like, make sure I looked good. I was, like, up here five hours every night holding it up so I didn't have a double chin. Every woman here understands that. He didn't understand that. He was down here, double chin, didn't give a fuck, but I was up here looking awesome, sun in my eyes. You know what I mean? I knew what I was doing. If you're doing this for five hours a night talking to somebody, I wasn't seeing anybody else and neither was he. I built these triceps for him. (laughs) So we became a couple over FaceTime before we'd even kissed. And we did that for like six months and then eventually I was like, why don't we do this in person? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can uh, come to L.A. And this is when I noticed, like, fundamental differences between him and me because, like, he had a lot of questions. He had a lot of pla- He has to plan everything. He is not an easygoing person at all. He had to know every little detail about L.A. And I'm different. Like, if you tell me to come to somewhere, I'll just fucking, like, yeah, I don't have any money. I'll figure it out. Let's do it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't care, but I'm also eight credit cards in debt, and uh, he gets physically sick if he has to buy dinner. So we were different. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like he he had so many questions he was like what's your bathroom situation I was like I have a bathroom just come so he did he he eventually decided to come and uh, I went to pick him up at the airport and I took one look at him and uh, like he had his polo shirt buttoned all the way up to here I was like I don't know if LA is the right city for this guy like I don't think he can let loose we got in my car and then like he looked at me and we hadn't kissed yet at this point and he looked at me and I knew it was happening because he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, should we just get this out of the way? And I was like, okay, hot. (laughs) And so when we kissed, it was fine. And I I take him back to my place. But like the cool thing about when people visit you from another city is that you see your life through fresh eyes. 
The annoying thing about people visiting you from another city is you see your life through fresh eyes. <laughs> and my life was a mess. And I take him back to my place. He's taking in everything. Even like before we even get in the door, he's noticing like there, I had a tree in the front yard and it had slashes in it. And he was like, what's with all the slashes in your tree? I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I think like before I moved in, Skrillex used to DJ here and his fans brought samurai swords and they cut up the tree. All right, let's go this way. And then uh, he noticed there was a security camera above the door, and he was like, what's that about? I was like, oh, I don't know. I was like, I think, I thought the last tenant put it in because there are gangs in the neighborhood, and so I think he was trying to be safe. But it turns out it's because uh, my landlord used to, she just shows up unannounced all the time, and she's kind of (laughs) crazy. Like, she was arrested for bringing a loaded gun into a courtroom where she was on trial for petty theft. But come on in, the bathroom's on the right. And... uh, (laughs) He was like, why do you live here? I was like, well, because instead of checking my credit score, she checked my Zodiac sign. (laughs) And uh, she loves Geminis. So (laughs) even the gas guy came like while he was there because the hot water was out and he took a look around and he was like, I know this place. He was like, is your landlord crazy? And I was like, yeah, we, knew, we went over the gun story. We don't have to do it again. He was like, no, I know this place. I was like, what happened? He was like, well, five years ago, your landlord got arrested because she got into a fight with her tenant and she hit him in the head with a lead pipe. And I was like, that is the most plumbing she's ever done for any of us. Um, so I, I was like, oh shit, this guy's gonna leave. But he didn't. And like, he stayed and he loosened up eventually. And like, we drove around and I had this little cabrio convertible, which I loved. It was this little car that I got at an auction, even though I didn't know how to drive manual, but I was like, I want this car and I'll figure it out. And so I did. I bought the car. I had no idea how to drive stick. And I learned in the parking lot of the auction, <laughs> some guy just taught me. And so I would zip, it was the best part of LA. I would zip around in this little car and I looked over at him. We were going west on Mulholland Drive as the sun set, wind whipping in our hair and I looked over at him and I was like I think he's starting to like it here because his um, polo shirt was unbuttoned one button I was like I think he's loosening up and he was he was he was having a good time and so because he left the next afternoon and he came back and he had a ring he proposed to me and I know right oh yeah well, this, this story doesn't end well but like he uh, <laughs> it's nice of you though no and I, I said yes and I remember the moment because I didn't feel good about being engaged. It took me two days before I told anybody about it. I went anyway, because <laughs> I was like, he was like, why don't you come back to London with, me, London with me? And I always wanted to live in London. And I was like, you know, I'm me. So I was like, fuck it, I'll figure it out. I don't know, I don't know how I'm gonna do any of this, but let's do it, let's go. So I went back to London with him and I had all my stuff. We were walking, we were going back to his flat. He had this like bed sit in Crouch End. And I was going up the stairs and he opens the door and um, I hear him go, oh my God. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, oh my God. And I go, up to, <laughs> I go up the stairs. I look in and his ceiling had collapsed all over the floor. <laughs> all over all his stuff. The desk he sat at, the ceiling had like hit it so hard that it cracked in half. <laughs> like he could have been sitting there. He could have been, he's like, I could have been dead. I'm like, but you were in California. And he was like, but I could have been dead. I was like, you were in LA. Um, <laughs> And he sat on the edge of the bed and cried. And he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I sat down next to him and I was calm and I was collected. Was I calm because I knew that deep down we would figure it out? No. I was calm because it wasn't my stuff. (laughs) My stuff was still outside the door packed in a suitcase. I was fine. I didn't know how we were going to fix the ceiling. I didn't know how I was going to get a job. I didn't have a work visa. I didn't have anything. And eventually, I didn't have a fiancé because he started to resent me for the way I lived my life. He hated that I never planned anything, this whole fly by the seat of my pants, whatever, we'll figure it out bullshit. He hated that so much. And so we broke up. 
And uh, I gave back the ring, which I didn't want to do. It held a lot of monetary value for me. So that was <laughs> really difficult. <laughs> and, but he thought that I would just go back to L.A., like tail between my legs, you know, staying on some friend's couch, being immature. But I didn't. I stayed. And I got a work visa. I got a job. I have money. I didn't plan a fucking thing. And here I stand. <laughs> Thank you so much. Maria, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. It's so good to see you. How does it sound hearing your story back after quite a while? It was interesting. I was, uh, the first part of it, I was listening to my voice and I'm like, you have no idea how much I hate my voice. Oh no. I hate listening to myself. It's really, really difficult. But then I got into it and I was like, all right, all right, it's not bad. It's not bad. <laughs> not bad Which is like really, really complimentary for me to say about myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not bad. Okay. And what about the subject matter? This was a big moment in your life. Yeah. I mean, that's fine because I still do this material because I'm working on a whole solo show. So that's all part of it. So I tell it like a little differently. So I was just kind of like, oh, actually, that's better the way I said it there. <laughs> that's better. So I, I'm actually going to ask you for I'm going to have to listen to this podcast over and over again just to write down what I actually said. True story dot London. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I already subscribe. I'm a subscriber. <laughs> Excellent. So I am so curious to talk to you about this seat of your pants living style. Yeah. Is that still true for you? Because this was a little while ago. Yeah, it was, um, I think, uh, like 2017-ish. It's not too long ago. It wasn't too long ago. I'm still completely irresponsible. I said I had money in the story. That was just a straight up lie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm very seat of my pants still. I don't really plan anything, but I don't recommend it. I I highly recommend money. It's such a great thing to have, and I just don't have it. Well, that is like that practical issue of pursuing something as challenging, really, as comedy. You do comedy full time. Everything you do revolves around being a comedian and a performer. Is that a fair statement that your your life is really very comedy based? Yeah, I um I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So it is all comedy. And if I'm not actually performing, I'm thinking about comedy or thinking about jokes or writing or rewriting or helping other people write. <laughs> There's no like time off. It's not like a nine to five. So it's like 5 p.m. check out like and have my life. Not that I'm complaining. It's a great career choice. If you can make it work, definitely do it. But like it doesn't shut off. There's no time off. So you have to really specifically say, I'm not going to think or do anything comedy related for this amount of time. Mm. Otherwise, it just takes over. I could imagine that it's just on your mind every waking hour. So I wanted to ask where this way of living, is this just been your life forever? Yeah, I would say it's just um, immaturity. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty much what it is. I I think I just remember being in high school and thinking, I don't want a nine to five job. I don't want that life. I don't know if it's from watching my parents come home and my mom never really like emoted as much as my my dad did so my dad would come home and it would just be like it would just be sighing and stress and he would read the mail and all be bills and I so I I can't imagine just being in an office from nine to five what I'm curious about is whether the being so free with how and unstructured in how you approach your life is a choice or if it's the default it's just who you are and how you are and you couldn't be another way if you wanted to be. Yeah, I think it's just default. I didn't like. I didn't just say like this is how I'm going to be. I, was just, I just am this way. Yeah, and it doesn't mesh with my parents. And then I found out it didn't mesh with my fiance. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really curious. When you've spent months, I think, on the phone on Facetime, getting to know your fiance or who became your fiance, mm. and he shows up in LA for this visit for that first kiss. Was there chemistry? 
Um, no, <laughs> I think I said on stage it was fine. And yeah. I think that was apt. It was actually funny because I just saw who was my flatmate at the time in Los Angeles. I just saw her last week and she was like, I remember I left the house to give you two some get to know you time. And then you showed up to the same bar I was at. <laughs> and she was like, what are you guys doing here? Like, you're supposed to be at home, like tearing each other's clothes off and all that. And I was like, oh, no, it definitely wasn't like that situation. I think we were both awkward and like he's just off a flight and I think we were just kind of adjusting to this new dynamic. And it was like, it was definitely not like, oh, I've been missing you and I can't, I was so excited to be in your arms and like, let's go straight to your apartment. Because I'm so curious if you have advice for other people who might be in this moment falling in love with someone online before meeting them. I don't think you can fall in love. Like, I think you can think you're falling in love. I thought because we were connecting on something that wasn't physical. It was like we were connecting on an emotional, intellectual levels that that was a surefire, like telling thing that I've met the one. And then we met in person and there was something missing, I guess. I don't think you can tell who someone is until you're in a relationship, like in person with each other. There's all these like um, unknowns that you don't think about until you're actually together. I was wondering about your view of the difference between storytelling and comedy, because you're telling us about one of the big events of your life. What for you is the difference between those ways of expressing the similar story or the same story? I feel stand-up goes broader and storytelling goes deeper. So like stand-up like touches on a lot of different things and you know, you can make jokes. I think you can make jokes in storytelling, but you have more time to get into a moment in storytelling. Like you could tell an entire story about locking eyes with somebody on this tube. You could tell a 15 minute story about that. But stand-up just kind of like, it's like, um, it's just like skipping through everything. It's been hard to adjust from going from stand-up to storytelling for so many reasons. One, it's just like, there's things you just forget because you're packing so much in that you forget to like expand on things that people would be really interested in. Like somebody asked me once, like, how did you meet? And I'm like, I never, <laughs> I never thought about telling people how we met. It's all about this relationship. And I didn't think to tell anyone how we met. I think that the breath versus depth point is really apt because the storytelling when you're when you're doing it in story form there's an opportunity to like really go internal and tell us about what you're thinking but I remember the night that you told your story it was part of a lineup where there were a lot of heavy stories and yours was such a relief because it really told this very relatable very funny story in this you know relatively light way but it made me very curious about what was the inner experience for you. You gave us some hints of it, but mm. not like the full treatment of what was going on for you. But it did spark a lot of empathy in me wondering how you were feeling during that during that time. Thank you for asking, because I don't think I even realized, I don't think I was having that much fun. I didn't realize that until I just said it out loud to you now. What I think like my whole solo show is about, what I'm learning more and more is it's about people pleasing. Ooh. And I think... Like you self-abandon when you're people pleasing. So you don't really care about like what you feel and what you like need. And, and so I think like because he proposed to me and I said, yes, it's like, why did I say yes if I wasn't sure? Because it took me three days to tell anybody. I, you said that and I was just blown away by that fact. Yeah. And I just felt like I should. <laughs> he, had, yeah. he had done this nice thing of getting a ring and getting on in one knee and proposing. And I was like, I said yes, because like I didn't want to say no and hurt his feelings. Wow. But you felt it immediately that it was a no. Yeah. If I'm being truly honest with myself, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't happy. I wasn't excited about it. 
That's pretty uh, extreme people-pleasing. Yeah. I don't think that he was getting married for the right reasons either. It's not like he was so in love with me and I was like, "Eh, I guess. I think he wanted to be normal because we're both comedians. I think we both wanted to do something normal. (laughs) Like, you know, and I think we were both getting along well enough. Have you ever felt pressure to be married? Yeah, so because I'm a comedian and because I don't have like a steady job and I don't have any kids, you know, I just felt like I should be doing something that my parents would be happy about, like (laughs) that they could tell other people about, you know? Uh, And so I was excited to tell them. I know you're, that is funny and it's, it could just be a joke, but are you serious? Yeah. Did you really want to please your parents? Yeah, it was part of it. It was part of just wanting to be normal and like, I'm sure I thought I was in love at the time. And then I looked back and I was like, that wasn't love. And I probably knew it deep down, but I wasn't being honest with myself. Was there any specific moment where it hit you like this isn't right? There was a lot of emotional stuff that wasn't going well with us. And I I thought he was really emotionally manipulative, a bit of a narcissist. And it was just always stuff that was off that I couldn't pinpoint. He blamed me for everything, for anything going wrong in his life. I was blamed. And then like what did it was that he threw water in my face (sighs) And then he threw all my clothes that were hanging on this like rack on me. And then was like, he was like, you're abusive. (laughs) I'm sitting there. Oh my gosh. Dripping with water and clothes on the floor. And then I was like, huh. (laughs) I was like, this isn't going to get better, is it? It's going to get worse. But I was grateful for that moment because it was like, that's a very specific thing I could pinpoint because the emotional stuff can get really jumbled and you don't know like, well, maybe I am just, you know, maybe I am aggravating. Maybe I am like too mature. And and even if all that stuff is true, like the way he was behaving wasn't justifying it. If he got upset, which was all the time, there was no way out of it. There was no way to make it better or to like talk it through or like it was like he put me in corners all the time. And like no matter what I said, he had a problem with it. And there was no way to couldn't apologize I couldn't say, let's drop it. I couldn't say, well, tell me more about how you're feeling. Like, there was nothing I could do to get out of his anger at me. And I felt cornered constantly, and I hated that. I'm so sorry you went through that. Thank you. Well, I I got an excellent show out of it. (laughs) I know, right? How do you decide what to keep in and what to keep out? Because are any of those darker, harder moments funny? I've been putting the water, throwing water in my face part in my solo show. And I'm having, I'm finding it very difficult to do. Because I'm still kind of doing the stand-up thing and making everyone laugh and stuff. So like this moment comes out of nowhere. It's so stark. They kind of laugh like it is a sitcom moment. Like sometimes people take it very lightly. And then I told that, I told it yesterday at a work in progress and I got gasps. So I was like, okay, so it's not a light thing. Did you feel pressure to make people laugh at True Story? Yeah. Really? Oh, Yeah. Well, because I was kind of brought on as comic relief anyway. And I wasn't in a place where I could talk about anything I just talked about because um, I was still learning how to form all of this into a story anyway. Like, I'm finding it very hard to let go of stand-up. Yesterday, during the work in progress I was doing, I was in the really story-heavy part of my show. And I stopped and I was like, is this... Sorry, I'll get to some jokes soon. Are you guys okay? And they're like, yeah, we're fine. And like, they were still with me. They were connecting with me this whole time. And they just... That I, I need the ha-ha-ha <laughs> yeah. to feel that, but it's, it doesn't have to be there. But that's why I wanted to get more into theater because I, I wanted the space and I didn't want to feel the pressure of like punchlines every 15 seconds and be more real and vulnerable without worrying about like a comedy club booker in the back of the room being like, you're not making people laugh enough. I'm not going to have you back. Because it's all money related too, right? I'm like, if they don't have me back, then I don't have that money. And that's even, you know, it's my job. <laughs> but you're changing your job by pursuing more 
more theater, more shows, more diversity. Yeah. And you're doing your own show, your own solo show, but you're also directing others. Yeah, I really love directing other people. I think because with my own show, I feel like it's so valuable to have just an outside pair of like fresh eyes who have no idea or they maybe they have some idea, but they can just be like, why don't you say more about this? Like I was saying earlier, it didn't occur to me to like even talk about how we met in a story that was heavily about this person, <laughs> you know? So it's just nice to have an outside opinion. And I love doing that for others. And I love shaping stories. I love the challenge of like figuring out what a through line is or what the, what the themes are and like, and how to make something punchier. It's a lot of fun for me. So I'd like to get into more theater directing too. So I think it would be incredibly interesting to have you at some point in the future, if you would even be willing to tell a story with us where you're not trying to be funny. Yeah, that'd be an excellent challenge. I'd love that. Mm-hmm. What would you tell it about? I don't know. There's, I mean, I could take anything from my stand-up and turn it into not funny. <laughs> <laughs> By what? By telling the darker side or the yeah, cha- maybe. changing the inflection? Changing the inflection. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, and just not having, oh, that's going to be a challenge. I have jokes about being broke. I do Let's think your it. jokes about money are really funny. I think that's partly why I'm always asking about it. I think money is a stand-in for so many things. And it's such an interesting topic and it can carry so much power and it can carry so much shame and what it means when you have it, what it means when you don't, what it means when you're struggling for it, what it means when you're you know, just see, just kind of searching for the safety and the security of having enough. How do you figure out what's enough? Yeah. And I'm, I've always kind of wondered what, what's blocking me and like, why do I stay in this small place or like, you ever read the book, uh, You're a Badass at Making Money? I have read You Are a Badass, which yeah. is by the same author, yeah, Jen Sincero. You know, she, she said her dad would always be like, do you want some money? And, you know, and like she would take it so that he would feel needed and loved and stuff. And it's just like, I think I probably did that on some level. Like I was just, I stayed sort of a child for my parents to like make them feel needed and, and loved. And especially because I didn't have kids myself. So this codependency was obviously very easy for me. Like, oh no, <laughs> I have to stay little to take money from my parents. But I didn't, I, I guess I never really considered myself like self-sufficient. And I talk about this in the show, but like my, my dad called me every day at 1 PM to like check in on me and make sure I was alive and stuff. And you is this need, when you moved you to London? To, no, my, like when I moved to New York first, Oh, okay. I've always been just like, well, fuck it. Let me just go wherever. So I moved to New York for four years. I was in LA for seven years and now I'm in London. And like, he's just always been like, checking in every single day. Really? And I hated it. It just felt like an obligation. And I just felt like he was constantly telling me, you're a child, you're a child, you're a child, and I need to protect you until you get married. And then a lot of people have different, because I talk about this on stage and half the people think that's really sweet that he checks in every day and half the people think it's overbearing. And I just, I guess it depends on your own relationship with your parents, but I, I just felt like it kept me in like child mode for so long. Is it still happening? Yeah, I'm like definitely still trying to get out of this mindset. Um, my dad passed away in March. So it's like, it's just, it's like even like clearer now. It's like, I need to figure my shit out. Of course. I'm so sorry. Oh, thanks. I haven't seen you since you lost him. You have. Oh yeah. I went to your birthday. Shit. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) And then there was, um, there was uh, Helen and Selena, Helena. And no, Sophia. stop it. This is getting really so bad. Funny. Delete that right now. No, keep it in, please. It's so funny. And then I was at the true story. Stop <laughs> it. 
So here's here's me. You asked me if I have a, a second line going on while I'm interviewing. I'm like, I better clean up the fact that I momentarily forgot that Maria recently lost her father, which I know because we've messaged about it. Yeah. But I was making like a clumsy excuse for not remembering in this moment, which was then a lie and untrue. And you pointed out all the reasons, all the <laughs> examples of why I it's not true. It go. I, I could have just been like, yeah. No. I didn't. I no, was like, no, no, not having that. <laughs> I'm actually glad you called me out on it, but it's totally. I'm totally sincere about saying oh, that I'm sorry you. that I. I'm sorry that I didn't acknowledge that. That's incredibly interesting. What you're describing about the relationship between your with your parents and feeling like you're always reminded that you're their child, and that keeping you in this childlike mindset about the way you live your life, which might feel free spirited, but actually at some point was feeling like irresponsible or not adult enough. Mm. And losing your dad means that you have this quite visceral experience of not being his child on this earthly plane. Yeah. I was watching the Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary. Uh, It's really good. And, but he was saying how, like when he lost his parents and he was like, what is, what am I doing all this for? It's like, like somewhere subconsciously you do all this to kind of like be like, look what I did, mom and dad, you know? And then when he lost them, he was like, I don't, I just remember feeling very connected to that. Mm -hmm. What I'm noticing is that there are so many interesting themes that you're referencing. Are they all connected to your solo show? Are you exploring them all? I'm exploring them all. I'm having a hard time like getting all the information in, in a like cohesive way. And even as I'm speaking to you about it, I'm like discovering more things and I'm like, Oh yeah. Like obviously that. And Obviously what? Like, well, obviously the people pleasing, like just articulating it more. It's like, I already knew it was there, but like just even articulating it, it's like stand up and, and, and doing well at a show is people pleasing and, and wanting my, my parents to be happy to the point of almost marrying somebody I didn't love is people pleasing and saying yes to somebody I didn't love is people pleasing, like to an extreme and keeping myself small so that they felt like parents still is people pleasing. Just even saying that today, like I didn't realize that so clearly until now. Yeah. And as you're figuring it out, like, what does it mean for where you think you go from here? Because it's obviously amazing material. It's such a common trait, the people-pleasing trait. Are you just mining it for material for your show right now and figuring out where it takes you? Yeah, I'm kind of letting go of the worrying about punchline. I think I have enough jokes. Yeah. So I'm now I'm trying to, like, it's more about the depth. How do you get to the place where it's okay for you to not make people laugh? You just put it in a theater venue instead of a comedy club. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that is that an interesting way of reframing yeah. and getting yourself comfortable with. I didn't invite people here to laugh, but I will make them laugh, but I'm also going to make them think and feel. Yeah, I specifically sought out a theater because I wanted to let go of that expectation of laughter. Because when I did my work in progress yesterday, it was at Top Secret Comedy Club. And I felt the need to tell them at the beginning, this is a work in progress, I'm trying to make this a narrative So it might be heavy on the storytelling. Like I only felt that need because we were in a comedy club where I've grown up thinking, because like in New York, we were told get laughs every 15 seconds. I just need to come out of comedy clubs so that I can let go of that need to make people laugh and just see where theater takes me. And I've been writing it out as a theater piece and putting some elements in. and, And I have two endings now. And one, the first one, I lie and say like, my father's still alive. And the second one, I talk about him dying. So... I don't know which, I don't know what's right, but I have to like, I have to actually perform it to figure it out, I think. Wow. And it sounds like you're really experimenting with digging deep 
and figuring out what's going on internally for you and sharing that and hoping that it pleases people. But ideally, getting to a place where that's not the standard. It's like you have a truth to tell and it will land as it will land. Yeah. And let that be okay. Yeah. I guess in the end, I just have to, I have to like what I'm doing and that can't be like validated by like how many laughs I get or if people leave happy. Some people will resonate. Some people won't. And are you, are you feeling close to to that? I am. Yeah, I am. I'm getting, I'm getting more and more excited it's called Wisdomless. And I've been working on it for a long time. I love it. I am learning a lot about myself. <laughs> and it's funny, but I'm also I'm getting um, a little more real. Maria, thank you so much for being part of True Story, telling your fantastic story on stage. You really did provide such great comic relief. But I'm also so glad that we got to talk about the backstory of it and go a bit deeper in this conversation. So really, really appreciate both of those things. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's storyteller and conversation, check out the show notes. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by Sea Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. More information about our live shows and workshops can be found at truestorylondon.com. And just one more thing. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It really does help us to reach more people. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon. Hold up. 